Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Chris Patterson, a co-host of the network, and I have two guests today. The first is Laura Kina, who is a full professor of art, media, and design at DePaul University, as well as the director of the Critical Ethnic Studies program there. My second guest is Jan Christian Barnaby, who received his PhD from the University of Michigan Ann Arbor and has worked as a curator for the Center for Art and Thought. We'll discuss the co-edited anthology, Queering Contemporary Asian American Art, which was published by the University of Washington Press in 2017. Queering Contemporary Asian American Art gathers artists and scholars whose work disrupts challenges and reimagines ways of being Asian and Asian American. Through nine original artist interviews and seven critical essays, the editors showcase contemporary artists who queer our conceptions of surveillance, affect, mixed race, and Asian America itself. In doing so, the editors refuse narratives of inclusion and diversity as rallying points for Asian American politics, and instead are interested in the queer disturbances within artworks that respond to racism and state violence, while also forming solidarities based on critical understandings of shared oppression. So let's introduce the authors. Since there are two of you, I'm hoping you can both introduce yourselves a bit more extensively as artists and cultural workers and talk a bit about your own backgrounds. So Laura, let's start with you. Yeah, my name is Laura Kina, and I go by she, her, hers. Yeah, as you mentioned before, I'm a professor at DePaul University, and um, I'm a studio artist. I'm a painter, um, and I always consider myself sort of an accidental academic. Um, a few years back, I wrote a co-authored a book with Weiming Dariotis called War Baby Love Child, Mixed Race Asian American Art. Um, and out of that process, this second book, Queering Contemporary Asian American Art, in some ways is a, a follow-up on, on that project. Uh, so I'm an artist, an organizer, and an academic. And I live in Chicago, and I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I was born in California. Great. And Jen? Hey, my name is Jan. As uh, Chris said, I have a PhD from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Um, Currently, uh, I am a curator um, and a consultant for uh, in the arts. Um, I, too, live in Chicago. Um, I in my scholarship, I specialize in uh, interdisciplinary approaches to studying uh, Asian American art and visual culture. Um, I go by he, his, him. And um, can I just give a little uh, announcement? I am going sure. to be speak. Yeah, I'm going to be speaking at the Asian um, Art Museum in San Francisco um, on a panel there for uh, the Filipino uh, American Library, and we'll be speaking on queer curation and art and white matters today. Great, fantastic. That's on August. That's on August 11th, by the way. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Um, so let's uh, get straight to the book. So um, in the four, there's quite a, a, lot, a lot of information about um, the seeds and, and uh, spreading of this uh, of this as like as like a conference or as conference papers um, and all the kind of collaboration that went on over time. So can you uh, talk a bit about the you know where the conversation started for this kind of anthology? Uh, what led you to kind of progress and to publish the current version? 
Sure. Um, we actually met in 2012 uh, through in New York City at NYU at an NEH Summer Institute on Asian American Art. Um, and Jan, I don't know if you want to pick it up from there, but we um, that's that's where we initially met. Yeah, I mean, I can add um, a little bit more context. Uh, so we both did the NEH um, seminar in New York at NYU, and um, it was led by it was organized by. Um, Alex Chang and Margo Machida. And um, one of our uh, speakers uh, was the late uh, Karen Higa, who was well known in the Asian American art uh, field. Um, and she's a, she was a curator and a scholar. Um, and she gave a talk about um, how to do you know and write and curate Asian American art history, taking into account um, uh, a lot of things that uh, hadn't um, been conventionally sort of uh, done in um, in other works um, pertaining to Asian American art history. So, um, so you know, for example, like uh, like sexuality and um, and so. After that lecture, uh, we all started to sort of informally uh, start talking about, um, you know, uh, uh, ways in which to do Asian American art that um, that differed from prior uh, ways of, of writing criticism or prior ways of, of Asian American art being curated. And so organically, it just kind of evolved into... Um, you know these the, these discussions that open uh, that ultimately led into uh, these informal groups that uh, were organized um, thematically that uh, folks were interested in exploring deeper. And one of those groups happened to be a group that I formed um, called uh, at the time it was called Querying uh, Contemporary Asian American Art. So with that, um, you know that sort of uh, postmodern parenthetical around the why um you know that sort of suggests you know the question of how to do uh contemporary asian american art but also how to queer it right so um and surprisingly a lot of people joined the group uh, laura joined the group and um you know we just took it from there we just started talking about how you know the intersections of uh queer studies queer theory and um started to d- develop you know a type of reading list you know and and uh ways to think about you know these intersections of of queer uh studies queer theory queer of color critique and asian american art um one of the yeah. things Karen uh, mentioned was she she mentioned that we're like the termites of art history. (laughs) Right. That was a metaphor that really resonated with us. And over this month long summer institute, we were all, you know, eating and drinking together in this sort of conversation. So it was an organic thing that bubbled up. And then fast forward a, a year or so later, when my book War Baby Love Child mixed race Asian American art came out as soon as it was released my publisher said so what's next and you know as an artist I was like I I will never write another book (laughs) (laughs) but the moment um they asked me that I realized and this is probably the best way for a book to appear that it was already there I had already met so many artists and scholars in this conversation and lived experience needed to be put on the page um, and continue. And I, th- I think that's kind of the, the best way for projects to emerge. Um, it's not just theory, it's lived. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Well, I yeah, think... I just oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. You know, I just want to add to that. It was also really serendipitous that uh, uh, I moved to Chicago after the New York experience. And um, and so she, Laura and I kept in touch, obviously. And um, we, you know, she approached me and um, was like, hey, I have a, you know, I have this really great opportunity. Let's let's see what we can do with what we've spoken about during that, that summer. Mm-hmm. So. That's fantastic, and I, I think at the end of this this interview, I'll probably ask um, you both the same question about what you're working on next. And I think that's always a, um, a kind of forceful question that kind of I also hate. But then once I reflect on it, it seems like there is something already there. Right? There's things brewing. <laughs> um, okay. Well, as I as I did mention in the introduction, I think um, speaking to what you were both just saying about how this emerged kind of organically. Uh, I like the way Suzette Min puts it in the in the forward, which is that um, they, it's kind of reacting against these forces um, of inclusion and multiculturalism, in a sense. Um, in the forward, so she brings up like Wall Street uh, market firms and like art patrons who seek to procure like Asian American art and even even like gay Asian American art. So she writes that, uh, this is what she says. So she says that your anthology, quote, refuses the recognition that offers Asian American art as a safe but contained haven of an established disciplinary future. Um, I think that does separate it from a lot of works that have been out about Asian American art. But can you respond to to her take on that book, on your book? Laura, do you you, you want me to start with that? Okay, so... I don't know if I'm going to respond to this exactly, but I, you know, we conceptualized this book and it came out pre-Trump, but uh. it came out in a moment, um, of course, you know, in, in terms of Black Lives Matter and seeing so much violence against people of color, but so much silence um, about trans lives that were lost. We were seeing, you know, the celebration over um, uh same-sex marriage um, and re- this kind of recognition from the state that somehow we'd arrived at this great moment and that maybe these you know battles were done and that didn't feel right <laughs> so we were writing in that moment not knowing what was yet to come um, so I yeah I know there's been so much like pushback against mo- the multi- po- polycultural multiculturalism but now that we're sort of seeing that completely torn down I feel like there's a project that those projects are still important. Mm-hmm. So I don't think our project is intended to be dismissive of that earlier work. It's in dialogue with it. Um, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, to add to that, I mean, I think that's a, that's a really important point that Laura um, makes is that like, I think our book actually, um, you know, couldn't exist without like those prior works that had dealt with, um, you know, um, you know, issues of inclusion and multiculturalism, um, the way it was, say, in, in, in like the 1990s, right, where it was just very, um, you know, uh, dis- you know, very sort of like easy and like tokenistic in some ways. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, what Suzette Min um, really sort of uh, points out uh, quite beautifully is that like, you know, Asian American, Asia America, if you, you know, if we think of it, you know, it's not really um, a stable sort of category, right? And it is sort of, our, I think our premise and like our underlying motive for doing this book and, and doing it through the lens of uh, queer, right, is to take those points of differences and see 
what happens, right, to this thing that we, you know, this category, this field of Asian America, Asian American studies, um, and, and, and really try to push it forward, right, by approaching it queerly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's originally sort of why we, we had this really funky title, like, version of queering to begin with, right? It, you know, querying it w- was to sort of um, juxtapose both sort of the interrogation of, right, um, uh, the category of Asian American, but also um, as a verb, you know, to queer, um, to challenge sort of those normative sort of notions that had... Um, those forces that sort of held these uh, the category together, seemingly, right? Um, you know, the, we really resonated also with um, Halberstam's, Jack Halberstam's queer failure, sort of that notion pushing against um, an idea of success or attainment, and specifically in the Asian American context, you know, resisting that model minority kind of idea, and resisting always looking for the state for acceptance. Um, and then we were also really drawn to Munoz's queer futurity. Um, so how kind of go starting off with those two points um, and continuing discussion. But our book is really rooted in actual artworks, interviews with artists, descriptions of the work, and then having um, theoretical essays, scholarly essays in conversation with those. That's sort of the that's the structure of the book. Mm-hmm. Right. There are there are a lot of voices, right, speaking to to the readers from um, within the book. And I think that's the loveliest part of like this project is to, having gone to sort of meet and interview and talk to everybody who participated in the project, but also to sort of include um, the author, uh, the authors of the chapters, the theoretical texts um, who were a part of the seminar Right. And to make it, you know, to to provide, you know, this conversation that we had or to push this conversation we had like in 2012, you know, into something bigger and yeah, include over many years. I love how Alpish Patel asked us to read across, like read across the essays, read across the interviews. And it's not like you just want to take one out and that's it. They're meant to resonate with each other. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to the. Um to talk about the chapters and the interviews in a second. But first, I think it would probably help the audience just if we had um, what you had in mind what you mean by queer that would be different from like how um, someone who hasn't read a Halberstam or, or Munoz who might approach the book. Uh, because they probably, I think, you also say this in the introduction, that the kind of instant connotation is that you're talking about like artists who openly identify as like LGBT, which is not, uh, which only, some of your artists do, right? But that's not exactly the... The, the push mm-hmm. of the book, right? Well, always. I think, yeah, it maybe help to give a few examples. So we do definitely center LGBTQ artists. Um, one example is Tina Takamoto. Um, and in terms of like a theoretical approach, what Tina does in her work is queer speculation. Um, so we featured an interview where she, um, Tina's looking at um, her film, talking about her film Warning Shot and looking for Jiro Anumo. And in looking for Jiro Anumo, she was going into archives, World War II archives, um, and found uh, an actual person, Jiro Anumo, and was speculating that perhaps they were gay. And what would that look like? Um, and, you know, they're forcibly incarcerated. Um, what, was, what was his life like? And she makes a 
amazing music video about his life through queer speculation. So that's just one particular example of someone who does identify that way and is using queer theory as a strategy in making their work. Um, Jan, I don't know if you want to pick up and describe another artist. Sure. I mean, like, I think, um, you know, we deploy queer and queering, um, in a, in very sort of generative ways. I mean, like we, we are inclusive of those who identify artists who identify as LGBTQ as well as, as well as, um, academics who, um, you know, do as well and also work within the field. Um, but queering also takes on, you know, uh, another dimension, um, you know, we sort of, uh, deploy it in the book as a way to think about non-normativity in in the ways in which not just uh, queer sexuality um, plays out, but also like how that intersects with like other sort of minoritized categories. Um, But, you know, I can speak to the chapter that, you know, that I wrote um, on, on failure and Jeffrey Augustine, um, Sanko's work, you know, where um, I'm really sort of speaking against um, that impulse to find, a, you know, um, her- you know, like or reclaim heroic uh, archives that are often thought of as um, good archives, right? Where you find narratives um, that are that would sort of create uh, a positive way of thinking about Asian Americans, for example. And so I asked the, the, you know, the question of like, well, what if we look at how queer failure works in the context of Filipino American, you know, queer art and, um, and archives and what is, where does that get us? Right. And I think there's something to be said about working against the grain. And I think, um, when you use or deploy the term queering or when we use and deploy, deploy the word queering, it's, we're actually sort of going against grain and we're trying to find um, those generative moments that have been missed because like, you know, other people have focused on, you know, uh, archives that, or, or objects or documents or artists who do, you know, those really great and, and uh, heroic sort of uh, works that, that speaks positively about, you know, Asian America, um, because we need to, right? I mean, that's sort of like the impulse of, um, that's what drives, you know, uh, Asian American cultural nationalism, right? Um, to, to claim, you know, ourselves as, you know, uh, a group that um, has succeeded, and here's why, right? We have all these sort of like narratives that, that sort of support that. And actually, like, when we started this book, a lot of people were like, Laura, what in the heck are you doing working on this book about queer theory? They're like, are you gay? <laughs> it was like a question people ask. Um, but, you know, and I, I entered this project working as an ally. So it's not something that was my own um identity in terms of gender or sexuality. And when the first book that I did, War Baby Love Child Mixed Race Asian American Art, it was something that I personally identified at. So it was a different way to enter a project. But I had this really strong intuition that this was the project I needed to work on. And I didn't entirely understand why. Um, After the book came out, my child came out as trans. um, And 
I am so grateful for the years of working on this project and then getting to meet people in the community, trans artists, and learning from people. It really prepared me for something that I don't think I would have anticipated or been ready to you know, take on in my personal life if it hadn't been for this project. So that was kind of this amazing gift um, that the book gave for me. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, same, but I don't have a child. <laughs> but I do identify as queer. And I, I think I mentioned gay earlier, but like I, I do identify um, uh, as queer and gender queer. Uh, gender queer queer, Philippine X. <laughs> um, academic expatriate. So, um, uh, but I also think that, you know, for me, like meeting all these people has actually propelled me to actually want to pursue you know, this, this business, um, and to actually sort of be an advocate for, you know, artists of color, queer artists, and so on. So I think, um, it was just, uh, the timing was, as I said, very, very serendipitous. Yeah. One of my, um, one of my favorite interviews in the book, um, I think gets to this question as well. And by, uh, Kenneth Tam, I think that's no, yours, right, Jen? And yes, it, it is. <laughs> it's such an interesting interview because, uh, I didn't know his work prior to the book, and so I was looking at all of his work. And you, I think it's you, your instinct, right? That in mine as well is that you can't really read the work without a kind of queer framework. <laughs> but yeah. at the same time, the artist uh, himself um, identify or doesn't seem to want to put any kind of like he de- identifies as straight personally. It seems, but doesn't also want to put. You know, he's more interested in how people read it and how people read him based on the artwork. Uh, and so there's, I think what you're saying is like totally right on that. There's like this generative um, feel to the way that you're deploying the word queer or using it as a verb, um, especially when it seems so necessitated by work, even when the artists themselves are not like undertaking that, that you're not packaging themselves in that way. Yeah. Uh, in Asian American art, like there's this tendency to always want to read an art artwork through a person's biography and when the artist fuses that biography that you're waiting to be to be the meaning that's the sort of the question that starts to rise up in your interview jan i think yeah i agree something that he doesn't doesn't care to or it is not and so then how is the work functioning on its own aside from that yeah and i think like you i think people miss or like you know like uh scholars uh by sort of you know, just using context or, or biography, like there's something missed, right? Um, and I remember that interview quite well because I think, you know, the first piece that I uh, wanted to talk about was that um, that blue cushion yeah. uh, pillow piece, right? Insulation. Like, like, like a butt or an asshole. Right. right. So that's, yeah, that's exa- exactly what he thought. I think that was like the first, uh, yeah, my first words were, God, you know, that really looks like an asshole. <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess this is sidetracking, but when we were looking at Hassan Allahi's work and tracking transients, mm-hmm. we we're like, those toilets look pretty queer. <laughs> so so sometimes that we initially found art was not, yeah, it was organic. It is organic. And I think, you know, we have to be honest with like what we're actually seeing. But I think also it's really hard to... Um, to say exactly that, right, um, and put it in on in an, acad- an academic text or, or paper or whatever. And um, but you know the the thing that I loved about Kenneth was he was very in tune with the fact that it could be construed 
in a very queer way. And his later works after that interview actually sort of follows that the same trajectory. You know, there's this sort of this ambiguity, right, um, about his pieces. He he uses a lot of like um, uh, he he uh, employs a lot of you know same sex uh, um, uh, people that he sort of randomly met who aren't necessarily identified as as LGBTQ, um, but he puts them in these sort of like moments where. You know, you're just going, oh, my God, this is this is really weird. This is very queer. Right. Um, and how do we talk about that? You know, do we gloss over it? You know, and I think a lot in a lot of ways, you know, we might tend to gloss that aspect of works <laughs> because it's really hard to talk about. Right. Like people don't still are really uncomfortable, um, you know, talking about like uh, queer cultural production. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that leads to another theme that I saw through a lot of the artists um, that I think that is spread throughout the entire um, anthology. But I think m- many of the artists continue to utilize like their own body for a lot of their artwork, mm-hmm. um, and I, I, I think there's something queer about that act itself. And so that seemed to me like a kind of formal um, theme going on throughout all the artworks. Uh, and so you mentioned uh, Hassan Elahi, right, who surveils himself by taking pictures of every like bathroom that he visits. Uh, Wafa Bilal, who has the, the camera surgically embedded into the back of his head, right? Um, Kenneth Tam yeah. and then others. So, yeah, so can you speak to, to that kind of recurrence of, of the artist's own body and, and how that could also be read as, as a, maybe a, a formal kind of queer element throughout the, throughout the artist? Yeah, surveillance is definitely a theme um, that showed up a lot in our book. Um, <laughs> Jan, do you want to go? Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, you know, in some ways, I really agree with that um, that assessment, Chris. That um, that there is sort of this formal uh, the use of bodies is as a as a formal way of um, of, of sort of. Uh, want to say sort of locating queerness right well you, you put it in the uh, introduction in a very beautiful way uh, i think when you're defining the term too queer you say um you're using it as a verb uh which quote enacts a form of disciplinary resistance but that's driven mm-hmm. by queer bodies and practices and so i i think practices it's like the artist the practices of course of making the art but then the bodies themselves are also very important right to that the body is a really sort of important site of difference. And I think um, the ways in which these artists sort of deploy their bodies in their work actually speaks to their um, desire to um, to reveal or to show um, themselves or claim themselves as sort of, a, a you know, the, these non-normative sort of bodies, right, in a, in a moment you know, basically of crisis, right? When these bodies are being sort of dismissed or being attacked, right? Or, um, you know, in Hassan Allahi's sort of works, right? He's really addressing um, the killing, you know, of of people, right? Um, in, in the Middle East, um, in Iraq. Um, and so, you know, this sort of recurrence of the body is both biographical, I think, but also like a way to speak to, you know, how marked bodies racially are already queer in some 
you know, in, 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 in to some degree, yeah. um, within a culture, within sort of a society that has deemed them as other. And so, you know, it gets enacted through their practice, right? Um, and their use of their bodies within their practice. That's, and I, I, I think too of like, um, Ted Hong Nguyen's uh, The Pirates video that Miriam Lam writes about mm-hmm. in her piece that, um, you know, he's the director and producer of that video and, and artist, but then he also appears in the video um, reliving kind of the, you know, the, the experience of like a boat person, but fantasy, turning it into a kind of like gay male fantasy uh, and how important it is that that is the actual artist that you're seeing there. That's the actual creator. That's the, the person who's lived experience. You know, and mm-hmm. so like Jan, you mentioned that it, it kind of conjures the biography of the person, but it also because it, because it's the actual body, but then it also gives um, a kind of it lets the artist create from that. You know, like so yes, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. The, the story is both the story of boat people and the story of the like erotic um, encounters by pirates. When we were thinking about querying as a verb and a, sort of an expansive category, and we've definitely included people in our book that don't identify as LGBTQ but have a queer politics, we wanted to be really careful that we weren't evacuating queerness from queer bodies. So that was one of the points we were trying to make there. Um, you know, your question's making me think about my interview with uh, Zave Martajano and uh, Maya McCrindlewell. And in Zave's work, uh, we focused on uh, Zave identifies as trans um their brother honey queen's um dance of darkness uh, in which zave is looking at indonesian mythology hindu mythology and so it's not based on biography so much as a way to retell a story and reclaim a story and queer a story that's part of their culture and maybe a culture um, as a mixed race person as a trans person that wouldn't always accept them so and then really sort of this mashup of forms from different dance traditions, um, including traditional things and, um, you know, uh, gay dance culture as well. Yeah, I mean, I just want to add to that point of like, you know, yeah, the, we, we were very aware that, um, you know, people, academics and scholars, um, you know, there's a tendency to sort of, you know, embrace these terms like queering or, um, you know, um, to write about um, or to critique pieces, um, literature, you know, uh, archives, uh, art uh, through this lens. But, you know, it seemed as though, you know, there's also there was this tendency of like evacuating the lived experience of, of being queer. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we were we were very sort of um, mindful of that. And we did, you know, like when we deploy queer and queering, I mean, I think that sort of framework really takes into a, account a lived experience. Right. As well as a way to um, to take uh, to interrogate, to sort of um, look at things differently. Right. You know, going back to Alpish Patel's um, chapter on Cy Twombly, um, Alpish makes this sort of argument, can, you know, we think of something as Asian American art when the artist themselves is not Asian American? Could it be considered queer art because of how maybe the author is, you know, their their position and how they're talking about that? I think Herod Suarez does that as well. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so there are times in the book where people make these, you know, propositions and you may think like, how does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Well, part of the richness of, of the book that I mean, like in the interviews with, uh, with, with Kenneth and, and such that I found really interesting is that they, there's times where they really feel like interviews, like that they're quite improvised and, uh, that the artist is, um, I wouldn't say put on the spot, but that they are, you know, creatively thinking through with the interviewer mm-hmm. together. And I really like that this for having these interviews and I, because it could I've seen proposals where, for example, they want the artists or the creative writer to like write an introduction to their work, which is fine. Um, but it doesn't have the same generative effect I feel. And it, or they, they want the artist to have like an artistic statement or something like that to include. So was there, what was the kind of method methodological thinking and having the interviews? Like, did you agree to kind of um, emphasize certain themes in the interviews or to, to have them certain lengths or to do them, you know, by uh, phone or Skype or in person? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were a combination of phone, Skype, and in-person. And, uh, you know, this has got IRB approval and we had to have pre-scripted questions because you're working with human subjects, all that business. Um, but, Aside from that, um, I personally have been really inspired by the work of Margot Machida. I consider her one of my you know, mentors. Um, and she developed a concept of oral hermeneutics, which is building on this idea of having the artists uh, share authority in their work. Um, so I, you know, as an artist, I feel this is really important, too. Um, so we interview people, but then after we transcribe this, we return back to the artist. And sometimes we do another round of editing or adding things with the artist to really make sure that that's what they intended. Um, I love interviewing emerging artists, too, who mm-hmm. haven't told their story a million times and have a pre-scripted you know, way of, of talking about their our first interview that we did was with um, Kia Marcelo Junio and Grayson Hong, um, Jan, and that was like a great experience. <laughs> it was an in-person interview. Yes. Um, you know, it. I think the interview uh, methodology is, was actually really um, a good one for this because I think, you know, not only were we talking to like uh, emerging artists, I mean, like we were talking to like, you know, artists across like their, you know, their experience you know, the experiences from like, um, Wafa Bilal to, you know, um, you know, folks like, like <laughs> what is that? Sia Wolfhawk or Anita Yeah, Sia Wolf. Yeah. I mean, like these, uh, you know, these artists, you know, have blown up. Right. And, and, and then we also talked to, uh, artists who were just starting off, right. Um, like he and Mar- Mar- Marcelo Junio. And, um, so it was, um, it was really inspiring and it was very, um, you know, I, I I thought it was really exciting just to be able to uh, talk honestly and really frank. You know, just without you know any um, I want to say pretension, right? And um, to talk to these artists um, and and to hear them to speak about their work, you know, without it being scripted at all, right? I mean, that's that's that was just lovely. I think about you. We were before the interview started. You mentioned uh, that 
that Kristen, that you know, Anita Ali, um, and in my interview with Anita, I really, that was important to me because I know Anita since the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, so we came up together really identifying first as Asian American, and we were part of this group called the Asian American Artist Collective Chicago. Um, and both of our careers have taken sort of a trajectory where it's transnational, um, and there's different ways that we identify. So for me, that was really interesting, like why at a certain moment of time in the 90s and the early 2000s, one sort of U.S. national identity was really important, and how has it changed now as maybe the conversation has changed more to be about diaspora? What does this mean in terms of um, certain politics, in terms of social justice? What does it mean about our artistic practice? Mm-hmm. And like, artists to artists have this conversation about this journey over time within Asian American art. Mm-hmm. And this kind of leads back to the question uh, that Jan proposed before, which is, you know, you know if like can then non-Asian American be Asian American or make Asian American art? And, you know, the, I think in the, it's either you all or it's Suzette who in the beginning um, mentioned how uh, to a lot of art galleries, like the Asian artist has become kind of a celebrity like Ai Weiwei or Takashi Murakami. And that's, yeah. these artists are also in some ways responding to, to that, um, either either in the way that they're producing art or in the in their artwork themselves. Uh, and so can we speak a bit about that kind of that tension, I suppose, between, you know, how the big, big Asian artists and then the kind of diasporic uh, Asian American artists? Laura, you can speak to this as an artist, right? <laughs> what I think it was, I, I kind of trying to reflect about this. When Chinese contemporary started to blow up, right, in the 2000s, mm-hmm. then the art world's attention shifted itself to Asian art. And then conversely to transnational and Asian diasporic art. Um, so I think we're just a happy, like, spillover accident of focus on <laughs> those, you know, one, a giant market, and then the art world's hunger for emerging markets in Asia and sort of, you know, Southeast Asian art. Um, so it's not attention, it's just that market visibility um, caused us to be more visible. Yeah, but and it almost changes the mission of what people do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. I mean, like the art world and the art markets are, you know, there are forces to sort of contend with, especially when like you're an emerging artist. So there's a lot of pressure, I think, for young, emerging um, Asian American, queer Asian American artists to to really sort of follow, you know, you know, what is going on in the art markets. And, and there's a lot of pressure, right, for them to maybe um, compromise, you know, like what they want to do versus like what, you know, the art market wants to see. And so um, I think, you know, I think as, you know, as the way that I see it, speaking outside of like, you know, um, I'm not an artist or, or, um, you know, part of like that, that, that industry. Um, But I do think that there is um, a tension there, for or at least some pressure for um, for young uh, emerging artists, not just Asian American artists, but like artists of color. Um, I mean, there's also this huge movement right now, right, of museums trying to be more inclusive, um, and um, museums and and shows and exhibitions being called out for being too white, right? Mm-hmm. And there was a kerfuffle at the Brook- Brooklyn Art Museum where they hired. Um, for their African American uh, uh, art department, a white curator or African, sorry, uh, department, um, 
a white curator. And so these questions of, well, you know, how, you know, how do museums and, and, and galleries become more inclusive? I think, um, you know, those have been, I think that's being played out a lot right now. And I think, um, there are institutions that are trying to remedy that, but some of those solutions still feel, um, very, uh, not really thought through, very sort of tokenistic, yeah. you know, mm. et cetera. Um, and so, I mean, I think there's there's always going to be that that art market sort of yeah. challenge. Those things you're talking about, you know, we're looking at capitalism and neoliberalism. Right. That's from, I don't know, at least for myself, not the starting point that I even think about in making a work of art. And certainly for a lot of Asian American artists, maybe, you know, kind of returning back to like what was – Asian American movement about and it's starting you know inspired by Chicano arts by black arts movements um it's third world liberation moment so it has always been transnational um and it's only in this sort of I don't know maybe a false way that we remember history that it becomes only based on this one sort of nation type of identity um so for me it's been really useful to circulate back to japan and back to okinawa and have my working conversation in those areas um not because i'm caring about what the market cares about but because that's where that's what makes sense for my artwork and i think a lot of the artists we interviewed have have had a similar experience Mm-hmm. And like you said, it changes the conversation, right? It change, and it changes the goals of some artwork when the thing that they're um, facing or being packaged as suddenly shifts and then find themselves, you know, having to respond to, to these different contexts, even if it's not, like you say, at the, at the forefront of what they want right. to do. I think, um, you know, this project or this question or this challenge that Karen Higa posed at the seminar of like, you know, biting away at the, at the under pinnings of art history is um, a really good sort of like um, context to for us to think about like you know there is you know or context to question like how uh, how to change or reconfigure the narrative the art historical narrative to include some of these voices that have been excluded and you can't sort of ignore sort of the larger um you know, economic forces, because in my opinion, I think, you know, those are, you know, curators, you know, galleries and whatnot, you know, they're, they have a huge impact on like who gets noticed and seen and written about. And so I think, um, you know, while some, some folks may not be sort of creating works, you know, with that in mind, I think, um, you know, part of like the reason why this, this, project was so you know necessary i think is because you know we want we wanted to sort of disrupt that we wanted to get those narratives out there right in in a way that you know was meaningful and in a way that you know promoted these works you know for a larger audience whether they're academics or whether they're um curators or collectors right um i think um you know, for a long time, you know, these voices that the voices that we've included in, in, in this book have been ignored. And so this was, I think, our attempt to sort of, you know, chew away at that, 
that hegemony. Mm-hmm. And let's let's think of like uh, uh, I just want any kind of examples for about from how the artists uh, do that particularly because um, there's so many throughout the book and you know one of my and in your interviews you also emphasize them and of course in the, the critical work. Uh, you point a lot to them. And, and one of my uh, favorites, I think, was when you mentioned, um, I think this is Laura's interview with, with Anita Ali, right? That uh, in her first work was came at like right after 9-11 and um, it was part of it was defaced, right? Uh, as a, in the gallery space. And, you know, so that there, and this helped kind of create these conversations about, about um, not merely just like what art was or things like that, but, about terrorism, right, and about um, otherness. Uh, so can you um, speak to that, how the artists were kind of pushing their audiences to be more civically engaged or that they were thinking about their real-world real world impact? Sure. Um, hmm. So the, the piece that you're referring to is called The 1700 Percent Project. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was a piece that Anita did uh, while she was an MFA student at the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, and Anita was looking at the the rate of increase of um, hate crimes against Muslims um, in, the, in the United States um, post 9-11. And it had increased 1700%. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she made a really powerful music video about this. Um, and I'm, in that music video, um, it combines buto dancing and she originally started out as a graphic designer and then really became known through the spoken word scene. She was part of a group called I Was Born With um, Two Tongues. Um, so she, in that piece, combines um, her dance interests and spoken word and really talking. And, and her partner, um, Masahiro Sugano, uh, produced that video. Um, and then she created an installation piece about this, and it was defaced. Um so much of her work has been about sort of this sort of overt protest and rage and anger. Um, and I was interviewing her about a piece that she's now shown quite a bit called the Buddhist bug, which really uses humor. Um, and, and I was, we was asking her about the sort of shift in her work um, from that moment of anger and protest to using humor. Um, <laughs> and she was talking about the inspiration for, for that work. And I totally forgot what your original question was. Oh. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but like how you sought to try and spotlight the um, how the artists were engaged with, with like real world events, how they were trying mm-hmm. to create more civic en- engagement perhaps with some of their artwork. Can I respond to that for really quickly? Uh, so like when we, uh, when I interviewed Jeffrey Augustine Sanko, he was living in San Francisco at the time and his work has always been about um, taking iconographic, um, material from popular culture and, and reconfiguring it or, or queering it. And so um, he's since moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where he continues to create these really sort of provocative pieces. And one of those, uh, and he participates uh, annually. And I think he won last year uh, for an installation at Art Prize Grand Rapids, which has now sort of become a kind of an important contemporary art um uh event um you know he 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 has a project called society of 23 and if you look up look his work up on his website i believe it's sanko.org you'll see that um he's really sort of using his body you know returning back to your question about body um and he duplicates it duplicates his body over and over 23 times um and he um 
there's one piece where they're all kneeling. So it's Jeffrey sort of performing himself 23 times kneeling, right? And it's it really points to the um, that uh, the event that um, that sparked the whole controversy of um, Kirkpatrick uh, kneeling at the football um, at the anthem during before the football game. Um, and uh, really challenging or protesting uh, the current administration. And so, like, what Jeffrey is doing there is he's, you know, taking this moment that has been sort of publicized that Trump has tweeted about, you know, opposing, and he... Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick, sorry. You can tell he want to watch football. (laughs) Yes. I am gay, I'm queer, and... uh, That's okay, uh, people are protesting the NFL anyway, so... Yeah. I also... Clearly, do not watch enough football. <laughs> so, I, you know, um, Colin Kaepernick, yes, and um, so he's a he's a really interesting artist to look at, just because he's really, um, I think he's taking things happening at the moment that have become sort of iconographic because of like, you know, the, the things that uh, Trump has tweeted and um, using it in his performances and his installation pieces. So, yeah, hmm. yeah. but I think. Um, uh, my last point is, uh, I think all of the artists that we've featured do do a lot of, you know, produce work that does sort of engage uh, their audiences and and attempts to sort of engage them civically. I don't, I don't think any of, I don't think, um, you know, there are any artists in the book that that, that um, isn't sort of thinking politically, right, um, or thinking about. The, the you know the moment that we're in hmm. right now. now. I want to return back to Inadi Ali's work. So, the piece that I interviewed in the book about was called the Buddhist Bug, um, and in this um, photo series. Anida um, has created this costume that's like this expandable tube that's this bright saffron orange color, um, and she's got her head covered. So the, the this bug-shaped costume that she wears, it's like, she says it's um, like 40 meters long. Um, it's a combination of referring to sort of Buddhism and Islam as well. Um, and she's returning back to Cambodia, and you see this see her appear in many different settings. And then her partner, Masahiro Sagano, has photographed, um, as well as other photographers, photographed these performances that she does. Um, and it's, she really brings humor um, and it's sort of an absurdity to a topic that usually we don't think of that way. Mm. And she's really, you know, in each of these settings, interacting with the environment, uh, with kids in her community. And I love this one where she went, it's called Morning Prayers mm. um, from the Bug Series in 2014. And she went back to, um, I think it was the mosque that, she, um, you know, her family was part of in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, met, you, you both talk at length about that one uh, and how those spaces are, you know, that that the, the bug in a sense belongs to all, belongs to all those spaces and it shows the heterogeneity of Cambodia the, the amount of difference in a country that seems to just kind of like you, like she also says turns flat right once you get to the mm-hmm. states once you get to North America um, to admit I was also I was actually in, in one of her videos uh, when I last oh my I was in Cambodia um, and she it, she was doing the Buddhist bug and she was inside um, the heart of darkness which is a really famous um, nightclub in Phnom Penh, yep. 
So my partner and I were dancing next to her. And so I never, it was amazing that I'd never seen her actually inhabit the Buddhist bug. Um, but she, you're totally right. She does it in a very funny way, you know, because it's a bit different from the images where she's kind of like, she's a kind of a joyous thing to have around. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's, there's like, yeah, this lack of kind of, or this um, almost like supernatural or science, science fiction-y kind of a humor to it. Yeah, and I think this this particular work is a great example of someone, Anita herself does not identify as queer, but the Buddhist bug is um, gender non-binary and is a queer form, a queer bug that appears in all these places and then makes and transforms the spaces that it's in. Mm. So I think that's a great example of a work that we chose for how the work was performing um, as opposed to the artist's biography. But we yeah. were all so, you know, in many of these cases, looking at artists who are mixed race, who are multi-ethnic, um, diff- bringing up different questions of religion um, in, in a new way to understand the Asian American subject. I just thought of like the bug being sort of that sort of uh, that that insect that chews uh, termites. Sorry, the bug is a, right. a, the bug is a termite, right? That that sort of is is acting as a larger metaphor for this project. <laughs> well, I know that you're both uh, a bit on the clock, so I wanted to give two or more questions or so before uh, leaving. Wow. So, so first I wanted to ask you about the, the impact of this book itself, you know, how you see this making interventions in the discourse or um, in the art world, perhaps. Uh, and you mentioned the kind of like uh, the museum so white charge. Uh, there's even like the, the Me Too campaign now. Um, things that have been filtering through the art world and and all these kind of calls of, of appropriation as well. And so how do you see kind of your book making a, an impact or an intervention into those discourses? I immediately think of Sita Bomek's work. So we talk about the Curry Institute and mm. she, we have an interview with Sita Bomek and Saya Wolfalk and both those artists are taking on institutional spaces and creating these sort of fake institutes. With Saya Wolfalk, she creates this Institute of Empathy and Sita creates this Curry Institute. Um, and she started making artwork where she was bringing curry into the museum. You know, these white spaces that are not supposed to be stinky, right? Mm. So what happens smells or things that um, linger, <laughs> So I hope if there's any impact of our book is that it it leaves a little bit of a smell. <laughs> oh, that's a really good way of putting it. Yes, um, <laughs> a funk. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a there's a funk funky smell in the white cube, right? Um, <laughs> I actually, I actually curated that um, the Curry Institute while, while I was a t- uh, professor, a visiting professor at Whitman College, and it. Uh, let me tell you, it it did smell up that that <laughs> whole gallery, and people were like, you know, some people were really off put by it, but other people really liked, you know, they were like, this is so cool, right? We've <laughs> never encountered like smells in like, you know, this formal space. So I think. Um, to get to your point, I think, you know, I would, I hope, and I think Laura does too, that like it, it really sort of resonates uh, beyond the, the institutional sort of walls, academic walls, right, or even sort of like the largest sort of mainstream um, art institutional walls. And and it makes people think, you know, makes people curious about like, um, about, you know, uh, the works that we feature and the artists who we've interviewed. Uh, you know, I hope to, you know, I'm I think we've been sort of tracking a lot of the artists that we've interviewed over time because 
both started in 2012. And, you know, it's really amazing to see their work sort of progress and their work getting out there, you know, and really sort of making inroads in, in this crazy sort of art world, contemporary art world that, uh, that exists. This, this, over time, the very artists we interviewed have shifted identities mm. as well. So we realized uh, kind of nothing is stable. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, why don't we get to the question that I told you I was going to ask from the very beginning, which is <laughs> uh, what, what you two are both working on now. What is next or what, what do you feel is already out there that you could grasp a hold of and work on? Uh, I'll turn uh, Laura, you can start. <laughs> <laughs> so my next two projects that come up uh, is the first one is um, a book. But another collaboration. I said I'd never do another book, but this is totally different. Um, it's called The Okinawan Princess, The Legend of Hajichi Tattoos, and I just finished illustrating it. And it's going to come out this December with Best Press in Honolulu, Hawaii. Um, and it is a story that is written in pidgin English or Hawaii Creole by Lee Tanuchi. Um, and it's translated into Japanese and the Okinawan language Uchinoguchi. So it's a trilingual feminist project that's about Okinawan hajichi tattoos, and it pushes back against white normative standards of beauty. Um, So I think I am continuing to think about gender and ethnicity, race, uh, questions of colonialism, (laughs) and uh, in this particular work, reframing Okinawan identity as indigenous. Uh, So that's a project I'm really excited about. And the other project that's launching this fall is called the Virtual Asian American Art Museum, um, and that's a large-scale digital humanities project that I'm working on with Alexandra Chang, again, at New York University um, in connection with uh, the Smithsonian and Getty Research Institute, and it's funded by the Terra. And our the first modules that are going to be launched are on Japanese-American art. And I've specifically written about an artist named Michiko Itatani in Chicago that, um, yeah, so I'm excited about that. Great. And Jen? Yes. Um, well, I'm an academic expat <laughs> because I am not officially affiliated with, like, an academic institution. And I'm really fine by that. <laughs> but I actually have, a, um, you know, being sort of, uh, in, in my opinion, liberated from the, uh, the confines of the university has allowed me to actually pursue a lot of really interesting things. And so um, I have, I'm kind of independently sort of uh, curating projects. Um, I have this, as I said earlier, um, a panel um at the Asian Art Asia Asian Art Museum in San Francisco on August 11th on queer uh, Filipino Philippine X art and curation and white matters today and that it um, I'll be uh, in dialogue with Jeff, Jeffrey Augustine Zonko who is featured in our book as well as um, an emerging talent, uh, a Filipino-American gay photographer based in Indiana uh, named Kelvin Burzon. Um, And I hope everyone sort of checks his work out, and you can Google him um, online. Um, I have um, a manuscript that I'm putting together. You know, as an academic expat, you can still sort of write scholarly works. And so I have... um, uh, hopefully a, a book uh, forthcoming in the next year or so uh, on Filipino-American contemporary video and film and and you, um, archives of U.S. empire and how queerness sort of destabilizes um, 
queerness and the queer lens destabilizes uh, representations of, of Filipino bodies um, found in uh, the work that I look at. And then lastly, I, <laughs> this is sort of the first official time that I'm going to sort of announce this. I am actually working to be part of this larger sort of art, crazy art world, um, and working on a project to, um, to establish uh, an art business, an art gallery here in Chicago. Yeah, that um, will focus on emerging uh, artists of color um, and queer artists um, here in Chicago and and I hope in other spaces as well. So that's forthcoming. And um, you can actually, uh, yeah, find more details um, on my personal website, jankristianburnaby.com. Um where I think I will announce when that actually happens. <laughs> well, you both have so much going on. I can't wait to read both of those books. And if perhaps if any listeners are in two years in the future or listening to this two years from now, those books might already be out. So you might be able to just find well, them. My children's book is a very quick read. So, <laughs> oh, great. Yes. And, um, I just want to sort of give props to Laura because Laura has just been so amazing. Um, she's a really sort of important figure and artist here, Asian American artist, mixed race artist here in Chicago. And she um, really spearheaded this, this book project. And, you know, I basically tagged along and, um, you know, and I was really excited to be a part of it. But if it weren't for Laura, like, I don't think this project would have come into existence. So props to Laura for that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you should check out her work on her website too so i'm just gonna promote her as well laurakina.com and while we're plugging websites we do have a website for our book queering contemporary asian american art.com the longest url ever but we thought it would be kind of fitting okay. to have this and, really weird long url thank you <laughs> and then we'll have the, the some of the artwork in the book as well i suppose on the website, yeah, yes. I, I didn't. I didn't think of going to that website before the. I didn't know it was there <laughs> until just now. So. An online exhibition called Queer Horizons that we curated that you can also view, and the link for that's on our website. Okay, um, and we we also have one more thing: uh, a Facebook page with the yeah. same title. Yeah, <laughs> it's a long title. Yeah, Queer and Contemporary Asian American Art. Yes. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you both so much for being on the podcast today. This was my first time discussing an art book and doing an anthology with two different authors. So thanks for being here and humoring me through this. Thank you. You asked really amazing questions, thoughtful questions that I was just like, hmm, (laughs) how do we answer? (laughs) I try. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you again. All right. Bye. Bye. -bye. Thanks, Chris. Bye. Thanks for listening to this interview with Laura Kina and Jan Christian Bernabe on their edited volume, Queering Contemporary Asian American Art. If you have any questions, grievances, or suggestions for books for this podcast, you can contact us on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks for listening.